Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm the Duchess. I'm the Duke. This is episode 30. Episode 30. Did you ever think we would get to 30 episodes? I thought we would get bored way before this. You thought you would get bored. <laughs> yes, I thought I would get bored but you way didn't. before this, but I didn't. No, it's exciting. It just gets better. So we're here today to wrap up our discussion on Patrick Rothfuss's King Killer Chronicles. Yeah. So at the end of this, we will have covered all the written material, at least that we know of, for the King Killer Chronicle. Correct. So spoiler wise, this episode, we will be talking about everything. We will be talking about both Name of the Wind, Wise Man's Fear, the Lightning Tree and the Slow Regard of Silent Things, as well as going into some various fan theories, and tinfoil hat type thinking. So hold on to your hats. It's going to be fun. First, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping stuff. Just a few things I want to talk about. We normally talk about this at the end, but I want to put it at the beginning uh, because there's been a couple changes. And uh, I just want to put it at the beginning. So where can you find us? You can find us on our website at thedukeandduchesspodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter, which is probably our most active social media at the DND podcast D is in David and as in Nancy D is in David podcast and you can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess now interesting thing about Facebook is we just started a brand new Facebook group so if you want to get into some discussions it's a really good forum because it allows you to expand a little bit beyond the 280 character limit on Twitter go back and forth and it is a closed group. So let us know if you'd like to be a part of that. We would love to have you. It's already, you know, we just opened it up and it's already pretty active. We've had some great discussions in that group. We really have. So how do you find it? Well, the easy way is to go to, go into Facebook and search for the Duke and Duchess podcast group. There is a URL for it, but it's 47 letters and numbers stringed together and you're never going to remember it. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. So best way to find it, go to Facebook, search the Duke and Duchess podcast. And it is a closed group. So you need to send us a request, but we will, we process those very quickly. And as long as your name isn't spambot X234000. <laughs> Probably going to get in. <laughs> we'll just put you right through. It's not particularly exclusive. Don't try to sell us porn. We have enough. <laughs> So the people who are on the Facebook group are the secret Amir. They're they're the members. They're wicked smart. Absolutely. So the other thing is we love your iTunes reviews. We do. They're great. Really helpful for the podcast. But what we love more than anything is for you to tell other people about the podcast. So if you like it, tell a friend, share it on social media, let people know. Now, another housekeeping thing is... Next week, we are planning a break. So next week, that weekend of the uh, the 16th, 17th, 18th, we will not be recording a podcast. The following weekend is thanks is the weekend of Thanksgiving. I don't foresee that being a problem. We will most likely record, but we don't really know exactly what's going to happen with us around Thanksgiving. We're moving back into our house through all the hullabaloo that we're going through with our house getting remodeled. So 
there is a likelihood that it could be a two-week break, but we're going to try not to let that happen. I'm shrugging. Can you tell? <laughs> could you hear my shoulders shrug? I don't so, know. We can't say precisely when episode 31 is going to come out, but we're going to try to keep it to a one-week break, and we'll let people know. And we will be active on the Twitter and the Facebook pages in the meantime. Absolutely. If you miss us, because we'll miss you. We will miss you guys. So are we ready to get into the books? Well, first, I want to let people know what we're doing on episode 31 so they can get ready. Oh, yes. So episode 31 is going to be when we kick off... The Lies of Locke Lamora, and yes, I'm excited. And what are we going to read? Chapters up through chapter two. So there is a prologue and then the first two chapters. So that is what we'll be reading. I'm going to write this down in my handy-dandy notebook. I'm really excited to get into this new book. I was paging through a little bit to kind of figure out where the chapter breaks would be, and it's it's just going to be such a fantastic follow-up to the King Killer Chronicles. There are a lot of similarities. There are a lot of differences. It's a work that lends itself well to comparisons with Patrick Rothfuss's um, books, but also it's a lot more action-packed, a lot more action-oriented. There's a lot. It's a lot more pro- plot-driven. So I'm excited for it. Very funny writing. Scott Lynch is a very humorous writer, and I'm I'm really excited for you to get into it. I'm excited. Like I said earlier, this is one of the series that we've had kind of on our bookshelf that I've been interested in and just for whatever reason I've never picked up. So I'm excited to get into this one. All right. So now we're going to get into talking about the slow regard of silent things. So what was your overall impression of this book? So like so many things and like we've said so many times, I had a very different impression the first time I read it from when I went back and reread it to take notes So my first read-through, I think in part because I was trying to read it quickly, like I was trying to sit down and kind of read it all in one chunk, which I was not successful at, I feel like I kind of rushed through it, and at the end I was like, well, that was pretty much what I expected. The writing was was brilliant. There were some really adorable, super cute Ari moments. Ari is, I'm going to use this word in a different sense than most people will take it, but Ari is quite a pathetic character, meaning that you empathize with her and, you know, she it's you're very emotionally right alongside her. But my experience was that at the end of it, I was like, well, nothing really happened. We spent, in my book, it's 96 pages. 96 pages walking through the under thing and moving everything one inch to the left. Now, when I went back and I reread it for the podcast and I started taking notes, I had a very different impression. Yes. And my impression reading this book was, I mean, I kind of knew what I was getting into. I had read descriptions of the book and uh, Pat's note in the beginning is basically, hey, look, this isn't, this is what this story is. So you may not want to buy it, that kind of thing. Yeah, I didn't read that. <laughs> so he, oh, he starts off his note in the beginning saying, you may not want to buy this book. It's not a normal story. It's not really a narrative. It's looking into Ori's life and he kind of puts it out there. So I kind of went into it knowing what it was going to be and ended up getting a lot more out of it than I thought I would, particularly at the end. And we'll, we'll discuss it more. But I feel like some of the things that happened at the end had huge implications for some of the theories that we've talked about regarding the greater King Killer Chronicle world. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff in here that you can mine out. I think... A number of things, not just the one big thing that we talked about, but there's a number of things that that I think are really 
bring you deeper into what the whole world is about and what the story is about. So, like I said, that was my first read through. On my second read through, when I actually started taking notes and slowing down, I, I found there was a lot more plot going on than you realized. I think what's what's so different and unique about it is this is a story where you literally are with one character the entire time and you never see another living creature unless Foxen's a living creature, which we think Foxen is. So with the exception of Foxen, you don't see another living creature. Right. And it's a very interesting and daring. It is. Way to approach a story. It is. You know, but I think Patrick Rothfuss pulls it off. I mean, I'll say that up until King Killer Chronicles, I would have told you that I do not like stories written in the first person. Yeah. And I, with Patrick Rothfuss's writing, I don't even really notice. Yeah. Well, first person, I think, is more limiting. And it's part of why we have some it's part of what makes this narrative so unique in, in all in the whole series. I have a so when I went back through and I read it both times, I came up with my seven word synopsis of the slow regard of silent things. Lay it on me. An exploration of beauty in broken things. Oh, I love that. That gave me chills. Oh, thank you. So yeah, this is, I mean, looking back and really taking the time to digest it, I got more out of it than I think I realized on the initial read through. Mm -hmm. And what I did, so what we did just so everyone's on this on board is because we were kind of in a rush and the lightning tree was something that we hadn't discussed that we were going to cover. So at the last minute we decided we were going to do that. So the way we kind of uh, divided and conquered this was that I focused on slow regard. We both, we read them both, but I really kind of dug into it and Liz focused on the lightning tree and really dug into the lightning tree and took a lot of notes on that one. So I have a chart. <laughs> the question is, will it make it onto the website? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the way I did is I broke it down by chapters. So this in this book, we're fortunate to actually have chapter breaks. So I went ahead and I broke it down uh, chapter by chapter and sort of day by day. And so we begin with a chapter titled The Far Below Bottom of Things. And it's day one. And it is called what she calls a finding day. So in this chapter, really what happens is that Ari goes around and finds a bunch of things. And what she's trying to do and what is kind of set up is that she's got seven days until somebody comes. Of course, we know very clearly that who that somebody is is Quoth. You don't, you could guess in the, you know, if you've read these, obviously you kind of figure that's who it is. And about halfway through the story, that's confirmed. So... This is Quoth, who's supposed to be arriving in seven days. And one of the things I did is I wanted to know where this fit in the story. So I went back and looked at A Wise Man's Fear. And I'm not 100% certain where it begins. Because in the end of chapter seven, I think it's the end of The Wise Man's Fear, Quoth says he's going to be back to meet Ari in six days. But she says in here seven. So I don't know if that's just a... I'm not quite sure what that means. I, I, I didn't want to take that overly seriously. So this begins seven days before she's supposed to be meeting with Quoth. And we start out by meeting Foxen, who, what do you think Foxen is? 
Well, we've seen Foxen before. We have, yes. In The Wise Man's Fear when Ori takes both down to the under thing. She's has something glowing in her hand and he doesn't want to spook her so he doesn't ask her about it. But I would say Foxen is some sort of alchemical substance because we learned that Ori was some sort of alchemy master. Do you think it's a living creature? No, I don't. Because for Ori, I mean, I think he is for Ori, but she talks about a gear as though he was a living creature and had yeah, yeah. thoughts and feelings and was, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that to Ori, everything is a living creature. Yeah. Yeah, I was unsure. It's interesting. I don't know why I got the impression that Foxen was a living thing when you're right. She treats everything as though it's a living creature. So why would this be any different? I think you get that impression because Foxen is the first, he's uh. mentioned in the first paragraph. So you're still getting your bearings as to what the mm-hmm. story is going to be like. And she mentions Foxen. You assume this is some kind of pet, some kind of sentient being. However, I, you know, as you're reading on, I get the impression that it's it's not it's a lump of suet it's yeah something like that (laughs) so okay so we meet foxen for what for what that's worth and then we really get kind of early on a sense of kind of her unusual relationship with the things that surround her she talks about her blanket and how it could not touch the floor and the careful way in which she moves around things and as you said treats things as though they are real she goes into an area where she goes swimming and she swims down to the bottom of this this pool and she finds a number of things. She finds a belt buckle that's rusted. She finds a bone. She finds a golden key. She finds a ring. I don't know. I think the ring might have been somewhere else. And then she finds this extremely large gear. And she struggles to bring it back up and nearly drowns herself in the process. But ultimately, she gets these things. It's a finding day. And so she rounds up all of these things that she's looking for. She's looking for this for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is because when Quoth comes, she wants to have three gifts for him. So that is a major motivator throughout the entire the entire story. What struck me the most about this section of the story was how brave Ari is. Yeah. Our perceptions of her up to this point have been very timid and fearful. She's afraid of being touched. She's afraid of everything. And here she's crawling in this giant underground cave, diving naked into a pool, swimming through tunnels of pipes and and almost dying in the process and she pops back up and she's fine so she's not all right from the beginning we see she's not the character that we thought she was no not at all and you know when she went swimming that was where i kind of got the first inkling of it because i'm like swimming into like an unknown quarry or something is already an intimidating thing but to do it in a in the dark underground. Right. You know, she does this very clever way of creating a water uh, tight bottle and putting Foxen into there. That's, I think, where I, why I thought Foxen may have been a living thing. But again, how she treats Foxen, it's just like every other object. So, well, I think maybe it was, it's some sort of substance that would, you know, maybe it's rare, you know, be lost if it got flooded with water. So, yeah. So she puts it in a bottle and uses it as a light, although it does not seem to be a very effective light. So anyway, she finds all these things. The next thing she finds is a new place. It's a room. It's a sitting room. 
and it's in this doorway that has 12 different doors, and she's only explored doors number three and number seven. And then she finds the key, and the key opens up the ninth door. So in this door is where she finds this room, and she wants to go about sort of setting things right to make the room right. She has this sort of incredible sense of feng shui uh, but but much it is more like uber feng shui. It is uber feng shui, way more than most of us would would look at that. While she's in the room, she finds this very small stone soldier, who she said was lost. You know, she she remarks on this and that his face was kissable, but he was lost, and now he was found. And you know, at the time when I'm reading through this the first time, I have no. I don't really even think much about the soldier, but you find out at the end that the soldier is actually a little statuette of a Syridae from the Emir, and it's actually quite relevant. So when you're reading back through it the second time, you get to see all the ways in which this Emir character, you know, is sort of relevant to what's going on and just all the different ways that she uses this soldier as a way of kind of, she puts it, she has a sense that it acts like the Emir, you know, in different in different ways. So I thought that was interesting. There's a bunch of other things that she finds in, in this section and then in some other sections, like in this one she finds the sheets, which she really wants, but she will not take them. There are very prescribed sets of circumstances where she is allowed to take something or she takes something and replaces it but she never like takes away from an area she won't take something that doesn't belong to her or that she doesn't feel belongs in that location she has this real sense all through the book and we get a first inkling of it here at the end of this chapter of just because she wants something does not mean that that is where that thing belongs so that she's she does not give herself freedom to just take things because she wants it And I think this is the first time where we see Ori express her fear of putting her will, imposing her will on the world. Correct. And that's something that she brings up over and over, that she's a greedy thing. She's a selfish thing. She needs to keep herself small so that she doesn't impose her will on the world. And that's a very important part of understanding her mentality. Which, again, we'll wrap up more towards the end. The other thing I notice here in chapter one, and, and this is chapter one and chapter two where most of the notes are for me, is she is washing constantly. Yes. Hands, hands feet. Fa- yeah. Hands, face, and feet. Hands, washing face, constantly. and feet. Over, over, Compulsively. Over. Yeah. Compulsively. Many, many, many times a day. So, and one thing I want to point out is that, um, and I hope, I hope this doesn't come off as nitpicky to you, hmm. but... Um, when she finds the door, I noticed this, I read this page a few times because mm-hmm. it confused me. But when she finds the door in the hallway at Wayne's, she actually doesn't use the key to open it. Mm, okay. The key is in her pocket the whole time. The doors are all open. They're not locked. Oh, okay. She is all, just not opens the others because they've been at the wrong time. So that was significant to me because you would expect, so she found a key. So right away you're thinking... Okay, it's going to unlock something. Okay, but she actually doesn't try to unlock anything with that key. Mm, yeah, good point. She puts it in her pocket, and I'm I'll, I'm reading it right here. It wasn't the third door or the seventh. Ori was already planning her route to Thoroughbottom when she spied the ninth door. 
It was waiting, eager. The latch turned and the door eased smoothly open on silent hinges. Ari stepped inside, pulled the key from her pocket and kissed it before she lay it carefully on an empty table. I, when it said the latch turned, I assumed that she used the key. So did I. And then the next paragraph, when it says she pulled it from her pocket, I was like, oh, that's... I assume she put it back in there. But I think your your point makes sense. There are some other times in this book where there are some sort of inconsistent, not inconsistencies. It's she says one thing, but the evidence shows you something else or things that just sort of logically wouldn't make sense, but you don't quite catch it immediately. And I think there's some meaning behind that. And that's so it doesn't it doesn't shock me to hear that because our brain wants to put a narrative in this book that is not there. Yeah. <laughs> if someone dives down to the bottom of an underground quarry and comes up with a key. We want to know what that key unlocks, but we don't get to find out. And she's not even going to try and find out. She's going to find its perfect place on the table by the door. And that's it. And that's what so that it's key very, belongs. and that's just very indicative. I think of this book as a whole. That's true. Yeah, that's absolutely true. All right. So the next chapter is called what a look entails. And this is the beginning of day two. Now I'm not going to, each day has its own sort of thing. I forget precisely what day two was called, but it was a working day, but there was a different turning day, turning day. There you go. Thank you. But each of these days that she says sort of is indicative of how the rest of the day ends up going. So they sort of frame up how those chapters are going to, are going to proceed. So, Here is, again, the chapter name, What a Look Entails. And this is where she kind of gathers everything that she's found and tries to make sense of it and tries to figure out where do these things belong. The one She's able to really kind of get a glimpse of everything for the most part, except for the gear, which she ends up walking around trying to find a place for the gear. That's a a big part of what this chapter uh, is all about. And then as she's out there wandering around, she ends up finding a place where she sees the footsteps of people from above, some recent fresh footsteps. And what she realizes is that a pipe has been broken and they're coming down to look for the pipe. So what she does as a way to kind of keep them out and secure her area is she shuts down the valve, fixes the pipe, turns the water back on, so they will stay the hell out of her under thing. And then at the end, she finds, she ends up getting lost, and she wanders on a place called Black Door, which is quite significant. So that's kind of the summary of that chapter. Anything that you wanted to note on that? I, I got some other notes as well. Right, so what this says to me is Ari's aware of what is outside of the under thing. She's she's fully aware of what the students, the masters are doing, the existence of this whole world above her, and she has no desire to go back to it or to even remember anything about her previous life. So, And she also is savvy enough to be able to perform plumbing maintenance yeah, right. in order to keep her space private. Yeah, she's, she's going to, if she's got to, you know, she's got to repair a broken piss pipe, she's going to do it keep those nosy bastards from down in my under thing. So we go through, you know, one of the features that's big in here is the gear. The gear is this large, you know, this large cog 
that she finds that has 10 teeth, but one of the teeth is broken, one of it's missing. So this now is a, a broken cog that has nine teeth. And as we go through, this becomes a pretty central thing, this gear. And I can't help but think of it as a symbol for Quoth. Oh, I like that. So as we go through, I, th- I think we'll get more into why that is. But her kind of desire, it's its a shiny, bright thing. And she talks about Quoth in that same language. And she's constantly wanting to try to find a place for it. But it's proud. You know, it, she describes it in ways that are very similar to the ways that she describes Quoth or that we would think of Quoth. So it seems like that. And then at the end, we'll talk about it later, something happens to it that I find to be very significant from a thematic sense with the rest of the story. You're smart. So as we said, she repairs this pipe, and then on the way back, she ends up getting lost. And this I find to be really significant. So she gets lost, and she wanders through this area, and she's like, oh, I think I know where I am now. But then immediately she realizes, oh, no, I've stumbled into Black Door. And it's this hallway, which presumably leads to a black door, which she says is inviting and wants you to go down it. But she is terrified to the point that she will not even turn her back on it. She walks backwards, back the way she came, until she feels like she's away from it far enough and safe. And then she huddles down and has a moment where she tries to collect herself. And then she reflects and she searches deep down inside of herself, searching for her true perfect name. And she is very relieved to find it there. So Black Door is somehow able to change your true name. Hmm. That's an interesting speculation. It ain't speculation, it's the truth. We'll see. I think that this is I think this is where the under thing butts up to a different part of the university where we have the stone door. Hmm. The four plate door. You know, so I whatever is behind the four plate door, obviously it's well, I shouldn't say obviously. We presume there's something behind there. It could be a gateway, you know, but I assume that it has some sort of physical mass, mm-hmm. which means that that four plate door is not the only way to interface it. I'm making kind of an assumption here that this black door area she's talking about is sort of a uh, a cavern that leads up to maybe the back side of it or something like that. Right. And the power of whatever is behind there is able to change somebody's true name. Interesting. So that is what I have for that chapter. Anything else? Nope. Okay, so the next one still in day two is called, Bro- the chapter's called Broken and Beautiful. And here she's still finding, trying to find a place for the gear. But while she's looking around, she hears music and thinks that it's Quoth. So she goes up to try and inve- and investigate. Um, and while she's, well, I'm sorry, she goes up to try to find it. But while she's there, she wants to quickly find her three gifts. She goes up and ultimately finds that it's not him, but she ends up being, you know, sort of happy anyway, and so happy because she's thinking about, quote, that she doesn't even care about the moon. Yeah, I think that's significant. And um, she also talks later in this chapter about not minding the moon being there for company now that she wasn't close to Haven. 
What is Haven? Where am I? What am I missing? Haven is the Nut House, the university's Nut House. Oh yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. The other thing I noted in this chapter is while she's looking for gifts, she thinks about the golden ring. She's like, it's bright and shiny, just like he's bright and shiny. Again, another right. comparison with the gear as well. She says, but it's no good. And I, I got a quote quote here. She did not wish to hint at him of demons that the ring was foreboding and she didn't want to put that on him. Hmm. And I'm thinking, hmm, I, and I don't I don't have an answer for what that means, but there's something about that ring that is somehow tied to, to demons. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. We have an angry suet later in the chapter, so <laughs> I try to assume it's, it's, you know, you just don't know what's a metaphor and what's not. True. Yeah, difficult to say. So the next chapter is called A Quite Uncommon Pleasant Place. And this is when she's up above the under thing and she is kind of wandering around at night. She finds some food that people have left out for her. She she, uh, kisses a dog and she buries a bone under a tree and leaves a present for a little girl who spies her out of her farm room window. And that's really kind of what happens. um, Do you have any earthly idea why... She took that bone that she found at the bottom of that thing and buried it under an oak tree. Well, I mean, she took it to a graveyard. Oh, good point. Okay, so that's the that's kind of what I saw her doing. Oh, you know, I didn't even think of that. That's very logical. It was definitely <laughs> a human bone. So yeah, it was an she, arm. Bone. Yeah, she yeah. took it to a, a graveyard. Yeah. Okay. There you go. She buried. So it. for me, this the impact of this chapter is in the contrast between the last paragraph of this chapter and the next chapter, which is called hollow. And this chapter ends with her licking honey off her fingers and giggling um, as if she were some tawdry thing, all wicked and unseemly and her heart is brimming. And then on the next page, the chapter is called hollow. And all it says is on the third day, Ari wept. And that just like, that's where this book really started to get under my skin. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, that just really hit me. Um, And if you know anyone or if you've ever struggled with mental illness, you know, like you just, it just describes what that can be like. Well, and it doesn't, it doesn't come from anything. Yeah. There was no precipitating incident that led to it. Right. She just woke up and cried for a day. I have a potential connection between her and Quothier. So somewhere, I believe it's the end of chapter 10 of The Wise Man's Fear, is when Quoth is dealing with the the final kind of wrap-up from the Plum Bob incident, and he spends a day in the inn just crying. And it's about three or four days, roughly. It's hard to tell for sure but it seems like it's about the same time that Ori is down there crying that he spends a day in the hotel crying from all the emotional turmoil of dealing with the plum bob. It's just a couple days before he meets up with her. So it's almost like their cycles are together. I don't know. They may be cycling together. They may I, be cycling together. I didn't spend a lot of time in Wise Man's Fear figuring out exactly where yeah. that was going on. But So that's my speculation is that You know, I don't think that's true. I think all of this happens. 
I don't know, because Ari sees him right after the plumb bob. So after she, that day he's crying, she crawled, that's when she crawls into his room. Oh, you're right. And sees him. So this all happens between now, then, and the next time she sees him, which is when she gives him the lavender candle. Mm, That could be, yeah. Yeah, I said the timeline's not, it's difficult to tell. Right. It's difficult to tell. All right, so the next so the next chapter is The Angry Dark, and this is day four. So what happens in day four, and, and sort of the big, you know, thing that happens there is that she she just has the worst bad hair day you've ever had. <laughs> she she runs out of soap, which, you know, for somebody who compulsively cleans themselves, where that seems to be sort of a tick that she has. This becomes sort of an unsettling moment. That's kind of how the chapter begins. And it really is just kind of a continuous number of upsets one after the other until she's able to get this resolved. So it starts with that. Later, she tries to rescue a skunk, but the skunk bites her. The figurine of the Amir. Uh, acts as if it's so much better than the rest of them. Her blanket gets tainted when it hits the floor. It's just really become like the worst day ever. Right. So we see Ari starting to really spiral down into a very dark place. And she stays there for a couple of days. Um, I just look back into Wise Man's Fear and because this was starting to drive me crazy. Uh (laughs) So this, everything in the novella seems to happen between chapters seven and 11. Yeah, that was my take too. Okay, good. I'm sorry. I'm glad glad we cleared that up then. Yeah. Okay. I believe I said that at the beginning. You may have, but I needed to see it for myself. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. So. Keep going. The other thing I noticed in here is that she, so she goes to find soap. Uh, this I thought was cute. But some animal has eaten her soap. And she she says, I hope it shits itself to death. <laughs> but later she's also talking about Quoth, kind of in her, in her dialogue, and talks about how Quoth gave her her new name. Uh, but before this name, times were dark for her, and now she's much happier. And while she's kind of, you know, reminiscing on Quoth, she says he is, quote, oh, so unaware of oh, so many things, end quote. All right, so that's all I have for that chapter. So the next chapter is Ash and Ember, and this is day five. So uh, during this day, really what happens is Ari makes soap. In the midst of that, she has sort of a breakdown or kind of a panic attack, for lack of a better word, where the whole world kind of becomes unsettled around her, and it's due to, well, it could be due to a number of things, but she is able to fix it when she is finally able to figure out the gear and where the gear is belongs. And when she turns it to its right way, she said the world ticks into place, and all of a sudden all the bad feelings kind of go away, and now we're kind of in a happy place again, and she has soap. Right. So just what we're seeing through this whole section of the book is how hard Ari has to work just to be okay. Yes. And that she has to spend copious amounts of time moving things, touching things, arranging things just to be okay in her own skin. 
Yeah, absolutely. A couple of other things that I noticed in this section. So uh, there's an area that she calls boundary, which I'm not quite sure what it is, but it's like an old lab or something. Yes, and I, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, go too. ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to mention that this is the first time she talks about boundary. Yeah. And longingly thinks of some of the equipment that is there that would make her soap making much easier, but she's not willing to risk going there. She talks about if only she had a press, and later if only she had camphor, but those things are there. They're in boundary. So given the fact that she talks so much about chemistry and alchemy and how much she's learned from Master Mandrag and how much of these things that she studied... Do you think that is an old lab she used to go to? Well, I believe it's confirmed later in the book. Oh, is it? But let's keep talking. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure mm, that's okay. confirmed later in the book. I my th- thought is how would her old how would her she's not that old. How would her lab have found its way into the underthing? I'm pretty sure that the ba- lab and boundary is in the university. In the university. Oh, that's okay. why it's the boundary. The boundary of the under thing. Okay, that was my perception. But I, I may have missed it. There's one of the things about this book is you would have to really read this book three or four times to kind of get all the little subtleties of it. I found it very disorienting. Her naming of things, but not really putting them in any geographical space. Right. I found to be very disorienting. Right. So I was confused about that. So okay. So while she's making soap, she is breaking apart these different husks of nutmeg and there's something wrong in the husks and it sets the whole world to spinning and everything starts to vibrate around her. And if only she can get to the gear, she can set things right. And she has this sort of obsessive moment. And then she, when she's able to touch the gear, she knows that's the answer, but it doesn't really resolve anything. And then she realizes that, she had been putting the gap, the broken tooth, facing upward, and she realizes that the gear is not really a gear, it's a fulcrum. It's the point on which everything spins. And she spins it to where the broken tooth is down, and she said the world clicks into place, and now everything is settled again. Now, next chapter is called All Her Desire. This is where she finishes her soap and cleans herself. Right, and it's interesting, and I'm going to get a little more into this when we talk about the lightning tree, because it's a very interesting contrast between Ari and Bast. Ari is mentions, again, over and over her fear of acting on her desire, of imposing her will yep. on the world, whereas Bast is the exact opposite, and he lives only according to his desire. That's his nature, and he's completely fine with that. And in fact, when he's pulled away from his desire, that's where he starts to struggle. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So the next chapter is called The Graceful Way to Move, and this is the beginning of day six. So this is where she says that she's really pumped. She's like, we've we got one day, we got to get these gifts so we can get get him to quote. And I thought, what do you get the arcanist who has everything? <laughs> so here, one, the way this begins is that she's looking at the gear, pondering it, and she ends up finding, as she's wandering around, some leaves that are blown in from, from above. And she realizes that the leaves are the same thing 
that's etched into the gear. So she gets the gear and she follows them. And so while she's following them, they lead her to a storehouse. And this storehouse is filled with food, dried fruits and raisins and nuts and all these different things. But she, you know, despite being hungry, she doesn't take them. There is one thing that's out of place, and it's around this cask of olives. So she takes the olives. Now, these olives appear in the wise man's fear. Yes, they do. Yep. Mm-hmm. In chapter 11, she feeds them to quote an Elodin. So that's another confirmation of kind of where we are in the story. So uh, when she's leaving that area, she's walking through some stairs. And while she's walking, she trips and drops fulcrum, the gear, and it breaks. And in that moment, we have another very, very, like in those seconds, we have a huge revelation and a lot of sort of internal dialogue that's going on. She had before, so she drops it. She knows something is wrong, but before she can bring herself to look at it, she talks again about what happens when you know you try to impose your will on things, and that she knows that you have to step lightly in the world. When you're not careful and you don't step lightly, bad things happen. And then she lets out a revelation that she says essentially that somebody, you know, like she's talking about a fulcrum and how things can can go either way, like a wrist that is grabbed too tightly when a man is full of wine and want. And it leads you to speculate, was she assaulted? Yes. Yeah, yeah I think so too. Now, I have a theory about this. It's very tinfoily. I like those. So but there's not really any evidence for this, but there is a girl that Ambrose goes after who is never seen or heard from again. And I speculate that that could be Ori. Wow. That is a good speculation. I'm going to have to go back and, and look at where it mentions that part and see whether she was an alchemist. Um, yeah, I don't know. It would be, you know, it would be chapter 30-ish of The Name of the Wind, yeah, somewhere sure. in that range, 30, 40 range. But um, but no, I haven't gone back to take a look at it. I, again, don't know that the timelines line up, but we don't really have a definitive timeline for when Ori sort of cracked. Right. So it's hard, it's hard to say. But I like it, and I'm going with it. I like it too. And so Ori also talks about... so. Fulcrum breaks and she's devastated for a minute, but then she talks about how Fulcrum is broken, but that that's okay because yeah. some things need to break to let their answers out into the world. Yeah. And the, the one I like, so the thing I like the most, she says, things break, eggs break, horses break, waves break, but there's no less water when the wave breaks. Mm-hmm. And this is where I was like, okay. This is definitively coat slash quoth. Yes. It, it, it is, a, to me, this is a symbol for quoth slash coat. And it talks, you know, and, and he is broken, but he is not shattered. And he is right where he needs to be. He is no less water than the wave that breaks. And that gives me some hope that maybe it won't all be horror and fear. <laughs> 
and just terror at the end of this book that Coat will actually be able to find his power and find his name again. Yeah, the line is, of course he broke. How else could someone so all certain centered let his perfect answers out into the world? Yep. Yes, I think that's a good speculation. So the next chapter is called The Hidden Heart of Things. Yep, and then um, so now the the fulcrum has become th- what she now calls the three threes because it broke the nine prongs broke into three sections of three prongs each, and she talks about somehow they were lighter. They were lighter because they've been able to spill their secrets, and secrets are heavy. And now I'm like, okay, n- now you're hammering me on the head with the with the quoth thing. This is definitively quoth. And then she goes out and she finds her three gifts and she also stashes the three threes. Now, I found where she put, I I must have missed something. I read it several times, but I found out where she puts one of the threes, which is into an old wardrobe. The second three she puts into the basement of the finest inn she knew, which I think is the Prancing Pony. But I don't know where she put the third. I speculate it's by his bed that she creates for him, but I couldn't definitively figure that out. I imagine. I mean, she's leaving the threes as a payment for the things that she's taking. Yeah. So she puts the first three into the wardrobe that holds the perfect sheets, and she takes a sheet for both. And he takes the blanket out. Right. Mm. And then she leaves the other in the the basement of the inn where she steals a mattress for him Mm -hmm. and then makes a bed. Yeah, so, so I'm not quite sure... Uh, exactly. The other thing, too, is that in this process, it crosses my mind that Ari is a listener. Like the old man in the story of Jax, who listens and could talk to the knot, Ari has that same skill. In the same way where Puppet is a seer, she is a listener. And where, you know, the the Amir are kind of opposed to the shapers, she as a listener is a shaper. Yes. And I think in the this this chapter, um, the hidden heart of things is where she makes his candle. Yes, that's correct. So we see her, you know, where she wouldn't go to the boundary to work on her soap. For Quoth, she'll risk going there. Yes. So she goes into a lab and she talks about this room that used to belong to another girl, but no, I'm not going to think about her. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm not her anymore. All right. I missed that line. Okay. So I I do think that it was um, the lab that she, at least a lab that she used to work at. So she walks into the lab and she talks about how, oh, this, this room used to belong to her. But no, this room belonged to someone once. Now it didn't. It wasn't. It was a nun place. It was an empty sheet of nothing that could not belong. It was not for her. Mm. So I took it to mean this used to be a, her lab or her place where she worked. Mm, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, just, I missed that. So, okay, that's good. So, yeah, so she's struggling to come up with the right thing for Quoth, and she decides upon a candle. She gets in the process of making the candle, but she realizes towards the end that for her to do it right, it's going to take way more time than she has. So she decides for him, not for her, she will bring her 
all her powers to bear. And she talks about how, you know, she had learned chemistry and alchemy, but Master Mandragon never really told her the real secret of things and that she had found it. And when she puts all this to make the candle right, everything around her shakes and trembles kind of at her power. And it's this moment where she does something metaphysical and supernatural. So I'm going to read this this couple of lines because I think it's really significant. So Ari is, like you said, um, wants to make this candle. She doesn't have enough time to do it through alchemy or or chemistry, Chemistry, however however she's going to do it. Um, And she looks at it and it says, there was a tension in the air, a weight, a weight. There was no wind. She did not speak. The world grew stretched and tight. Ori drew a breath and opened up her eyes. Ori was urchin small, her tiny feet upon the stone were bare. Ori stood, and in the circle of her golden hair, she grinned and brought the weight of her desire down full upon the world. And all things shook, and all things knew her will, and all things bent to please her. That is awesome. So what's significant to me in this passage is the sentence, she did not speak. So in the past, when we've seen like the big mojo happen, it's been a namer speaking the name of a substance or a creature and thereby exhibiting mastery over it. Ori does something else here. She doesn't speak. She just does. And she makes, and just to bring in a little bit from the lightning tree, when the Bast is explaining a little bit about the different kinds of fairy magic, and he's talking about glamoury and grammary, and grammary is the art of making, and making things more of what they are. And I Mm. think that's what we see here. So yes, we see here, and we've heard people talk in this world about the shapers, who were before the namers and more powerful. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we realize that Ari is a shaper. And when you think about what has hunted the shapers, what has happened to all the other shapers in the world, we begin to understand why she is the way she is, why she is so concerned about keeping herself small. Because all the other shapers like ended up doing terrible things and then getting locked behind the doors of stone. And I imagine there are probably the Sith or would probably lock her up too if they knew she was out there. Mm-hmm. So now we understand why she has this system of sending her hair and blood through bottles in in the clinks to keep people off her trail and a little bit about what has caused her to become the way that she is. Yeah, absolutely. And why she's, you know, why she's so afraid. The other thing that this made me think about is at the end of this, when she, you know, it, it doesn't happen in this story, but when she finally goes up to meet with Quoth, this is the time that Elodin is there. Yes. And Elodin has been trying to find her. Now, I have a speculation here. This is tinfoil again. All right. But I have a feeling that, you know, Elodin, we, when we first encounter him, we see him as somebody who not only is powerful in naming and all these things, but he also takes care of those who are cracked. That he, he, we get the impression that, you know, in the, in, the process of learning names, they get they become cracked. He feels bad about it. He cares for them. And that's why we think that he is looking for Ari. But I have a different speculation. Okay. I think that Elodin, while all that is true, also feels that 
somebody who is cracked is closer to finding a power that goes beyond naming, that being shaping. And he speculates that somehow those two things are connected but hasn't figured out how. And he thinks that Ari, he, he might know that Ari is a shaper, and that's why he's trying to seek her out. Not just because he wants to take care of her, but because he wants to see that power. You're yeah. looking at me like I have two heads? Uh, yeah. I think I'm right. Okay. I think there's something more nefarious to Elodin than we realize. Uh, I mean, you're allowed to think whatever you want. <laughs> I only own 50% of your brain. Right, and with the other 50%, you can do whatever. <laughs> including think wrong things about Master Elodin. If that's what I want to do, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I see Elodin as benevolent. I I think that he understands things that nobody else can understand. So I think he probably does understand a bit what have happened to Ari. And I think it totally makes sense that shaping is related to naming. It's sort of the deeper next level naming. And I think it's why we see Ari anthropomorphize everything in her world because namers are about understanding things on a very deep level. And she, if she understands everything around her like that, then I think that shaping would be the next logical level of that power. There are a few other things that we haven't talked about that kind of happened before the whole shaping event. So she puts the Amir up, I'm sorry, she builds a, a bed for Quoth and she puts the Amir up to guard him, but she also has gives him a book unread and full of secrets. And if you look in the illustration, you can just kind of barely see a man with his face obscured in shadow. Then she talks also about how she is going to be able to give Quoth a name. So I speculate that Ari can be the one to find and give Quoth back his name if he does change it. That's very interesting because my speculation is that Ari is the one who changed his name hmm. to help him become Coat. Because she talks at the end about one day he's going to come here broken and hollow and she'll give him a new name. Yes. So I suspect that that's exactly what happened. Mm. After whatever happened with Denna and some king, he came to Ari, broken. I mean, that would be the first place he would flee to. If he if he killed some a king in Imre and had to get away. He'd go to the Underthing. He would go to the Underthing. And that Ari took care of him, changed his name so that he could escape and in disguise. Mm. That's like my that. speculation. I like that better because mine relies on him having to go back to her, which I, I don't. I just don't feel as comfortable about that. So that makes more sense to me. I like and, it. And the book, it, the the book is very interesting. The book of secrets. Um, it looks in the illustration like there's a pocket hidden yeah. in one of the pages that she's reaching into. So yeah, I really want to find out what's in that book, and and I hope we do someday. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, well, here's the thing. So if if that's the case, and he did go back to her already, then he has likely read that book and knows whatever is in that book. Most likely. Yeah. So, we will see. Okay. Now, the last thing is she finds three gifts for him, and they are seven words. A bed, a kiss, and a candle. I love that. I love the seven word thing. And then... 
uh, the coda is the last chapter, and this is where she hears his lute playing, and that is the end of the novella. So you read this twice. I only read it through once. Like I said, and this yet somehow book, you still got way more out of it than I did. I really loved it. Um, not the same. It was not the same kind of enjoyment as a more plot-driven kind of book. But it, like I said, it, it this book definitely got into my gut and helped me understand some things about Ari. You know, reading her sections in the King Killer Chronicles, you kind of have this like fantasy or these thoughts that Quoth is going to be able to heal her. She'll be able to come back to real life. Reading this book, you realize how deeply broken she is and how, because we meet her after she's come a long way. She's able to talk. She sits with him. She's able to have meals with him. We didn't see the leading up to that. That Quoth hints at that, you know, it took him so long just to get him get her to acknowledge he was there and now we get to see how dysfunctional and messed up she really is and you kind of see okay no this this girl is not going to just get over it and be able to come be around people again no absolutely so that was very enlightening and i think the idea that she's the one who may have given him helped him change his name and escape is a very big speculation and i think the existence of a shaper in the world is a huge huge thing for this book yeah absolutely absolutely yeah no there was again what what we love about these books the writing is brilliant i don't think there's anybody who captures human emotional trauma in writing better than patrick rothfuss like really i I, i'm talking about any genre like he really does an amazing job of capturing that i agree and then the fact that you can dig so much out of it and there's so so much in these pages where, again, not a whole lot happens. There's not a whole lot of discussion, and yet you can learn so much about the world from what he does. It's it's just masterful. I agree. So, are we ready to talk about the lightning tree? Yes, I I have I have a, a slight bone to pick with you. Okay. So these are both great books. Yeah. But you definitely picked the one that was the more fun book. <laughs> Well, here's the thing, you know, we <laughs> we weren't going to go into the lightning tree because we had limited time to pull this together and we had to read this whole novella in less than a week and and I was like, "Well, I want to read it anyway." So I I bought I bought Rogues the anthology um and I was like, "Well, there's a lot of other great authors. I want to read it eventually." And I just kind of opened it up just to see and then I was like, you know, I read it I had to read the whole thing and then I had to read it again and then <laughs> I had to make you read it. So <laughs> It really is a fantastic story. It's a lot of fun. So The Lightning Tree is a short story that Patrick Rothfuss wrote for a an anthology called Rogues that's put together by George R. R. Martin, depicting stories of rogues, I guess, in all the different authors' works. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of great stories yeah. in it. I definitely recommend the entire anthology. But let's The Lightning Tree is a day in the life of Bast. How fun does that sound? It's fun. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun it's it's a really great story and one thing i love so we'll start off um is that it's separated into three times of day um section one is morning section two is afternoon section three is the evening and i love how that echoes the king killer chronicles yeah as far as day one day two day three mm-hmm. i hadn't thought about that good point point. and i love how 
we really see Patrick Rothfuss's skill at the show don't tell kind of storytelling in this book, because we follow Bast as he we, we open up with Bast sneaking out of the Waystone Inn, much like the beginning to Wise Man's Fear. Yes. We realize, however, that he doesn't really sneak out as effectively as he thinks he does. Yeah. And that again, in last episode, we talked about whether or not Cote or Kvoth knew what Bast was up to. And this lends credence to the theory that Kvoth knows what he, what's going on. Yeah. Because even though Bast is sneaking out very quietly and he's sure he hasn't made any sound, Kvoth still knows he's leaving it and calls out to him. And I think it's interesting that when Kvoth calls to Bast, Bast feels his name tug at him like a hand around his heart. Mm-hmm. So either he's got some sort of metaphysical connection to Quoth or just a very deep emotional connection to him. But we get to watch Bass sort of wander throughout the town and interact with people in these seemingly disjointed interactions. But at the end of the story, they fall together so beautifully. They do. And you realize kind of what's been going on the whole time. I just like the fact that Crazy Martin plays a pivotal role. <laughs> So we do, we get to I told to you from the beginning <laughs> that that was a man who knew what was up. So um, so we can go through a little bit chronologically, but also just go into what we've learned. So Bast sneaks out and he goes to this place that is called the Lightning Tree. It's a tree high on a hill that's been struck by lightning. It's overlooking water. And there's a bunch of children waiting for him. And over the next few few sections, what we come to realize is that Bast has an arrangement with the children of the town (laughs) where basically it's just so fun. It's amazing where they'll come to him and he'll help them with any problem, but he's got a barter system. So a secret for a secret, or he'll, he'll give you a good lie to get you out of trouble, but you have to give him a secret about your parents or a favor or a favor. And it's just, it's so, it could be so creepy, but it's done in a way that's so charming yes, and really highlights the difference between the Fae and humans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Bast heads up to the lightning tree and he begins by walking around the tree ritualistically, which I think is significant because yeah. it shows that Bast isn't just using his wits here. He's making a sort of binding promise to these children and with these children. Um, we don't realize until probably the middle of the story that he has a set of rules for them and that this is an ongoing thing. But these children come up and the first one who comes up to him is a boy named Bran. (laughs) And I knew I liked him right away. And he asks Bast for a lie. And Bast comes up with a really good one. And it's just interesting to see him you know, come up with these ways, it very intuitive ways to get these kids out of trouble. And this boy was playing with his mom's knife and he cut his hand and he knows she's going to whip him. So he says, well, tell him, tell them that you saw a rat and you threw the knife because you were afraid and um, that some other child told you a story about rats that scared you. And he said, well, who should I say told me the story? And he says, well, someone you don't like. And then he, he gives them advice as to how to work up a good blubber, put salt in your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so what he gets from that boy is some sweet buns. And the next boy who comes up asks for help getting revenge, secret mm-hmm. revenge on his brother. And I loved this. How big of revenge on a scale from mouse to bull? <laughs> and the boy says cat. 
So he advises him how to make his shoes smell like piss. And he trades for that the information on the location of a wild beehive and the location of Crazy Martin's still. Mm -hmm. So all these little pieces seem really just disjointed until the very end. So he wanders off. He seduces a shepherdess. And we see some of his fey power here um, because he seems to be seducing her without her being aware of it. Yeah, he Um, he whittles a a flute like a like a pan you know he he's literally like a cloven hoofed pan blowing on a on a flute right seducing her with like fey melodies like that's right. what's going on here but it does not the first time they've had this encounter it, it's not so and, and everything that bass does is just on the border like if it wasn't written so exquisitely he could come off as a total creep. Yeah. But he doesn't. There are some very clever things that Patrick Rothfuss does to keep that from seeming creepy. So it, he comes back to the tree after boinking the shepherdess. And he, I think it's significant, he circles it twice to ensure that his workings are still in place. Mm-hmm. So there's some sort of magic going on there. And he has an interesting interaction with a boy named Costrel, who is offering him the location of where Emberly the sixth or second prettiest girl in town, depending depending on who you you ask, (laughs) takes her bath. And in exchange, he wants Bass to tell him about the Fae. And he asks a bunch of questions about the Fae, which give us, you know, us as the the readers, a good sort of exposition and deepening of our understanding of the Fae, which, you know, we can get into and, and sort of talk about. But what I, the first part of this that really kind of struck me was when the kids started to get close to being able to, where he might ask a question that would reveal Bast. Now, Bast has already made this binding commitment that he cannot lie. So he's like, if this kid asks the wrong question, he's going to reveal me. And he's like, but I, I can't kill him. Like, the fact, like, this shows you a real glimpse in the phase mind. He's like, he's like, should like he has to weigh should i kill him like he has to weigh that out and it gives you a sense of just how different their mentality is than ours right so all these years amongst the humans have made him soft can't do it it's it's interesting and i definitely um want to talk more about the phase sense of morality and bast sense of morality because we've been into some very interesting discussions um, on the Facebook page and on Twitter about is this character or that character a good person? What makes a good person in this world or any other? But let's break it down a little bit more because I think this is Patrick Rothbus taking an opportunity to tell us more about the Fae to kind of set set them straight. So we learn that Fae refers to anything that lives in Fae and that can be animal-like creatures or human-like creatures but no dragons. And what <laughs> I think is interesting is how, even though Bast seems dedicated to not being revealed as one of the Fae, he sort of teases at it a little bit. He sort of pushes that. He says, oh, they look like anyone, just like you or me. And um, he, he tells us that some are, some are dangerous, some like to play with people and hurt them. And then the two secrets that he tells him is that, that most Fae don't come into the world because it rubs them the wrong way. Like we saw when Quoth came back from living in Fae with Felurian. Yep. But when they do, they like places that are wild, that are touched by fire, stone, water, air, just like this one. 
you know, and I'm like, you know, for <laughs> he, as committed as he seems to be to not wanting to be discovered, he sure is like hinting. Yeah, yeah. Pretty broadly that. Especially to a boy who he's already said is quite sharp. Right. And might be able to suss this out. Right. So it's very interesting when Bass talks about his morality, he talks about running counter to his desire. Yes. And I think it's very interesting to look at a couple of different characters that we've seen in the book and how their different sense of morality shapes who they are and how they react to situations. So on one end of the spectrum, we we see Simon, who is a member of the Eterran nobility. And we know that the Eterns are very straightly stiff-necked, moral people. So his loyalty, his his character development, his development of his morality comes from an externally opposed sort of abstract set of moral rules. Mm-hmm. And his status and his role in the larger society is fixed in yeah. time and space. He's got a, a landlocked home that he belongs to. He's got a place in the world. And as a result, he sees things as being very like right or wrong. He's very all or nothing. And so like this makes him a good touchstone, say if you're under the influence of a plumb bob. Right. <laughs> right. But it also imbues him with this sense of rigidity. And he's really awed by Quoth's ability to navigate ambiguous moral situations, such as someone's talking in the library, but I'm not supposed to talk in the library. So what do I do? Yeah. You know, and Quoth is able to just see the right thing and do it. And he, he admires him for that because he doesn't have that ability. So when you compare him to someone like Quoth, who didn't grow up with He has no home. He has no home. His home was his people. He didn't grow up under any one nation's rules. His loyalty was to his troop, or we see later his loyalty kind of becomes to his friends who kind of become his troop. Um, He's very comfortable navigating these ambiguous moral situations because he sees them all contextually, not on the basis of some external set of rules. And that's why- it's either right or it's wrong. Exactly. And that's why we're so interested in talking about is Quoth a good person? Because in some situations he acts this way. He has no problem lying, stealing, cheating. He doesn't even think about it. And in other situations, we see him acting sacrificially in order to better others. So it's this this flexibility from dithering in these situations that is a big part of his character. It makes him a great Amir. Right, it does, but it causes him problems when he's faced with making a moral choice that goes against what society would see as the right thing to do. Yeah, and he struggles in these prescribed social settings where, well, well I, I, again, I'm echoing what you just said, so I'll shut up now. It's interesting. I read some some good, it's got me reading some studies about the the traveling tribes that we have in our world, like the, um, the, the Roma, Romani. the Romani in Europe. I read a really good study by a lady named Judith Oakley who was talking about how difficult it is to get Romani children assimilated into the school system. I promise this is going somewhere that has something to do <laughs> with the book. But it talks about how the the people, the ambiguous status of their ethnic group really makes it difficult to assimilate because they're being asked to choose between their identity and the security of choosing the status of belonging to a country. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I think you see that struggle within Quoth. You know, he's 
he finds himself grounded at the university, but more and more losing his identity as the Edamaru. And I think that's why he reacts the way he does when he's finally called out and is being asked to identify as an Edamaru in with the the fight with Meloan Lockless. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why he acts the way he does. So, you know, you see these parts, the, these characters who, where they, the milieu um, that they grew up in, how they were raised, really impacts their mor- their morality and their character. And you compare them, though, both to Bast, whose status in human society is non-existent, and his loyalty is to his own desire. Yeah. And it works for him until he gets tangled up with Quoth. And like you said, now he's around humans. He's and gone all soft. All of a sudden, he says his desires are running counter to each other. And he's being pulled in different ways. So he's struggling even more with ambiguity. Well, and the way this story comes to sort of an emotional climax is with Bast doing something for a boy who he doesn't want to do, but because he recognizes somebody else's pain, he does it anyway, which seems to be a very unfay thing to do. Right. And the quote that I wrote down, so he is talking about whether or not he's going to have to kill the boy who's asking about the Fae. Yeah. Um, It's counter to his desire to lie, even though that would seem to be the obvious, easy answer. But since Bast seems to be trapped by his own desire, like that's his moral touchstone. I have to do what I want to do. But now he seems to want to do two different things. And um, he says... Now his desires are growing complicated. They constantly conflicted with each other. He felt endlessly turned against himself. Nothing was simple anymore, and he was pulled in so many different ways. So that's what we see is like this this conflict that Bass is working through in this story. We also find in this chapter, he talks a little bit about fey magic and glamoury versus grammary. grammary. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting because glamoury, we've talked about before, that's the art of making things seem. So it's fooling people. And then there's grammary, which is the art of making things more of what they are. And I wonder about what are the implications then for fey? Because we know that the shapers used grammary to make fey. Does that mean mm. that they made everything in Fay is made to be the best of what it could be or more of what it could be? Just an interesting question. Mm, After this, mm. Bast goes and has a bath, which he doesn't want to be late for. No. <laughs> and there are birds apparently watching him. Some birds watching him that sound like herons. Yes. The <laughs> strange colors on those birds. Mm-hmm. They're very loud in the bushes. <laughs> So after this, um, the next interaction that he has is with Viet, the mayor's daughter. And I just thought this was such a charming interaction. This little girl comes to him and we get to see what the the rules are for the children who come to the lightning tree. Um, No one taller than the stone. Come to black tree. Come alone. Tell no adult what's been said, lest the lightning strike you dead. And she wants advice on how she can convince her father to keep a kitten. And Bass gives her some pretty dastardly (laughs) advice. Right? Don't let our kids read this. <laughs> right. He advises her to hide food in her room and then pretend like she's so sad she wants to die. But he gives her advice like, it's very intuitive, not to overplay her hand, not to talk about the kitten, but, you know, just to just to not eat her meals for a couple of days. And, um, and lay there and be listless. Lay there and be listless and say, you're so sad. You just don't want to live anymore. And I was like, man... 
So after this, Bast meets with a boy named Reich, who asks for help getting rid of his father. So here's, like you said, kind of the emotional crisis. Bast is faced with this ambiguous moral situation. This boy Reich has... Well, he has... Yeah, he has no obligation to help him by the rules that he's already established. So there's no sort of weird Fayan obligation to help this boy. And this boy is someone who has reneged on one of his promises or somehow backed out in the past. So he has reason not to help him. However, he is moved with empathy because he can see that this boy has been beaten. He's beating his mother. He agrees to help him and sends him off on these missions. It's hard to know. One of the things that I, that I love is so he's like, the boy puts it out there. I, this is what I need, blah, blah, blah. And you're reading, you're, you know, you're listening to this. You're like, Oh my God, this is, he's asking him to kill his father. And, and Bass finally gets ready to respond. He's like, okay. Like (laughs) doesn't think, doesn't take any time to think about it. There's no sort of internal, is this the right thing to do? He's like, okay. (laughs) Right. Except he's not really asking him to kill his father. He wants him to go away. Yeah. Yeah. He tries to. Bass says, well, all right, let's just kill him. He's like, no, I I don't want to kill him. I don't want to be the kind of person that would kill my father. But so he offers to make him some kind of charm. It's hard to know how much of the charm is real magic and how much is Bass machinations. But we don't really see what, we, we kind of are led to assume that Bast goes off to the woods to find him and kill him because he goes to the boy's house and talks to his mother and seductively chops wood for her. Yeah. And then leads her off into the woods. We don't know why or for what for until the end. Well, yeah, you're led to, I mean, at least I felt like you were led to believe because you got to think at this point, Bast has had two interactions with other adult females and both of them led to him seducing them and having sex with them. And then he goes and he talks to Reich's mother, and it leads you to believe that the same thing is going to happen, and that they go off, and he said that she smiled, and she looked 10 years younger, and all these seductive things. She's a MILF. Yeah, all these things he's trying to do leads me to believe, when I'm reading it, that he takes her off the woods, and they go and, and have a tumble. But... That's not what happens. Or it may have happened and something else could have happened too. We don't know. But the next time we see Bast, he's bleeding, he's limping, and he smells like booze. Yeah. Now, we know that he found Crazy Martin still earlier in the day. So it's unsure as to whether he went back or or what exactly is going on there. In this time period, he has also seduced Emberly. Yeah. So he's had a hat trick in in one day. And Must it's, be a young man. I thought this was so cleverly done because it really could have been so creepy. He finds out where this girl takes her bath. He crawls up in a tree to watch her and, and falls out hoping to seduce her. But it it we find out that Emberly has been watching Bass take his baths. Yes. Because he looks up and, and smells the smell of his own soap and says, did you steal my soap? Yeah. <laughs> so it was a mutual peeping Tom situation yes. here. So that, that saves Bass from being a... A total, total creep. creep. Yeah. I love how that was done. And I love how we see Bast finally reading Salem Tenture when it finally suited him. Because he found Crazy Martin still and wanted to figure out how it worked. So he, he went and read a chapter of the book. But things start to come to a head after he seductively cuts the wood for Reich's mom. 
he comes back and uh, we see that he's bleeding and limping. And we're so we assume that he's gone off. So he has one more interaction. And what I loved about this, he, the, the child asks Bast for a riddle and the little girl is being like, you smell like Granda. Yeah. And I love... You smell like whiskey. You know, something. there's something childlike about Bast. And I think it's significant that he trusts the children in ways that he doesn't trust the adults of the town. And he talks to them as equals and he holds them up to their end of the bargains. Yeah. You know? That is sort of a... That is sort of a trope amongst fae creatures across literature. But that's okay. I don't care. It's it's awesome anyway. There were a couple really charming. So in the spots where the, the little girl comes to him with the kitten and she's like, I'm going to name him, you know, Mrs. Snugglefluff. And he, he just looks at her flatly and goes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then in this scene, the little girl says, your shirt is ripped and you've got grass stains on your pants. Your ma'am is going to give you a hiding. And Bass says, no, she won't because I'm all grown and I can do whatever I want with my pants. <laughs> and the girl just stared at him with smoldering envy. And that just made me laugh out loud. You yeah. know, um, it's a very just charming interactions. So we move into the last section of this story. It's called evening. Let And the, the chapter title is called lessons. So, he performs this ritual with Reich with a stone and a needle. And Reich admits that he is afraid that his mother is going to need protecting from him once his father is gone because he is afraid he's going to be just as bad as his father. And Bast, he, you know, he breaks down and Bast, we see Bast tenderly hug him and say, you're yeah. a good boy. Yeah. And um, he goes on in a couple of paragraphs to talk about humans and how he could tell this boy doesn't believe him. And he see, he says... Um, so glamour is like second nature. It's just making folks see what they want to see. Tricking folk and telling lies is like breathing. But this, convincing someone of the truth that they are too, too twisted to see, how could you even begin? These creatures, they're fraught and frayed in their desire. A snake would never poison itself, but these folk made an art of it. They wrapped themselves in fears and wept at being blind. It was infuriating. It was enough to break a heart. So we see just a really tender side of Bast. Um, and we don't know if this is true across all of the Fae, but on one hand, he is outwardly and just completely self-centered creature, but also has this compassion. Well, I think he's developing a sense of community, which we don't really see amongst the Fae. At least we have not seen. That's a really good point. So he tricks Reich into telling his mother that he loves her. Every day. Every day. Morning and night. Yeah. Then he loses his carrots. <laughs> <laughs> and he heads back to the waystone and Kvothe is like, I just asked you for some carrots. That's all I asked you so to I'm, do today. Damn it. But so he heads back and he hears the gossip that's being spread. And this is when all the, the pieces of these different interactions that we've seen kind of fall into place and we realize what he's been doing. So we learn that Reich's father, Jessam, Either got drunk or was attacked by a cougar. Not sure which one. But either way, he fell off a cliff. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty sure that that was Bast. Yep. Pushed him off a cliff. At the same time, someone smashed up Crazy Martin's still. And the everyone, of course, jumps to the conclusion that Jessam got into Crazy Martin still, got drunk, and fell off a cliff. And rightly assume that Crazy Martin is going to kill him because he's crazy. He punched a tanker. Yeah. <laughs> and Code is like, punched a tinker? 
<laughs> and Jessam was so freaked out that he went straight to Baden to take the king's coin. So he joined the army. Has gone for at least eight years. He's not coming back. And we also found at the very end that Nettie Williams, Reich's mother, found a hive of wild bees and managed to capture the queen, which is going to provide a source of income for her family yep. now that her husband is gone. Absolutely. So we see back to the very first interaction where Bast learns the location of a wild beehive is coming to play here. And I just, I love this show don't tell storytelling where it's not all laid out for you until it falls together at the end. It's, and yeah, it's great. It, he's so masterful at this. I just love it. You know, again, so this is where I think Patrick Rothfuss has this knack for plot that is different than a lot of other authors have, where you could just as rightly argue that not a whole lot happens in this story, just like not a whole lot happens in the slow regard of silent things, because we do not actually see Bast go out and do these things. And yet all these things happen. All these things happen in a character sense. And he tells it in this very clever way where you do get to realize what Bast has done. And it feels very satisfying from a plot standpoint, despite the fact that you don't see it happening. It's so well done. And I enjoyed the story so much. I liked Slow Regard of Silent Things when I read it the second time and I could start really pulling information from it and, and piecing a lot of it together. But I, I enjoyed The Lightning Tree right off the bat. And I only got to read that one once. But it was it was really great. I enjoyed that quite a lot. I'm not generally a fan of short stories, but I enjoyed this one a, a great deal. All right, so... So that's it. That's all that's the it. written material in the Kingkiller Chronicles. I'm I'm pretty sad. <laughs> So, what are your thoughts on the series overall? This has been a, a wonderful experience for me. The podcast, the book, all of it. I, I think the writing, again, that Patrick Rothfuss has, his skill at prose, his skill at world building, at character building, is really phenomenal. Really, but just his his skills at prose above, above everything else is is just outstanding. I enjoy these books. I, I'm very excited to get the conclusion and the wrap up of it, but it, it's been a very enjoyable thing for me. I, I put this, this is my second favorite series, you know, and a pretty close second to A Song of Ice and Fire. I agree. I it's very, agree. It's very, very good. So I enjoy it quite a lot. I do have. Right now, I can. There's only one prediction I've had time to really think of. Okay. And my prediction for the series, we'll we'll get, get into more at, at another time. But my prediction for the series now is I'm going to predict that Denna will be the one to open the lockless box. I am down with that prediction, and you and I have kind of talked about our predictions about Denna a little bit, but if it's okay, I'm just going to lay them all out here. Yeah, go ahead. I think we agree that Denna is running a parallel quest to Quoth's. Yep. And I spec we speculate that Denna's family was killed by the Amir. Yeah, I think where there might be a little bit of a difference is I speculate that Denna's family came from Yilish nobility. No, I, I, I agree with that speculation. Yeah, where... Well, actually, I guess Quoth's family came from nobility, too, on his mother's side. So right. so maybe it's not that different. Yeah. So I speculate that that we we know that the Yilish were ground out by the Oturan Empire. Yep. And we I speculate that 
Dana was a Yilish, comes from the line of a Yilish princess, yep. perhaps. I'm on board. And the Arturan, the the Amir, the Arturans through the Amir wiped her family out and she has been looking for revenge against them. So just like Quoth is seeking the Amir to get revenge against the Chandrian, she is running this parallel journey. And, and that, who would want to step up to help her? But one of the Chandrian. But an agent of the Chandrian. So either Mr. Ash is either Cinder or Count um, or Brayden. It's hard to tell um, at this point. I-, I think it could be either. But either way, Denna is it, inadvertently working for the Chandrian, just as Quoth is being nudged along by the Amir. I think we, we agree that the Amir or some agent of them has been active in keeping him from finding out too much about him, them, or about the lockless box. I do think that the Amir were behind the mayor's father's death yep. and the chancellor's illness at the yep. end of Wiseman's fear. Yeah, I I wonder, I'm beginning to speculate that they were that they have not really been trying to nudge him along. I think they're, you know, doing everything they can to keep him away. You know, which is why my speculation is they're the ones who sent the thugs after him. I agree that it was not Ambrose that sent the thugs. Yeah, absolutely. So, but anyway, that's kind of what we've what we've wrapped up with Dana. And we both think that everything is going to spin you know, the fulcrum of the story is going to be between Denna and Quote's relationship and Ventus. We yes. think that's where, you know, in the third book, everything is going to come to a full stop right there. That's where the action is going to happen. So we have a bunch of questions from our uh, listeners that we put out there. So we put out a couple tweets and said, hey, you know, we're going to be recording this big episode let us know your questions. And so we got a bunch. So let's go through them. Yeah. Uh, we're running out of time. So we'll go through them as quickly as we can. And and once again, I'm sure that we will not get to everyone. And we apologize for that. But we will get to as many as we can. So Adam says, he quotes a line from earlier in the book in the name of the one. He says, I can tell you the whole thing in one breath. I trooped. I traveled. Loved. Lost. Trusted. And was betrayed. Who do you think betrayed him oh denna yeah that's the obvious answer and that's what a bunch of people speculated in the responses i think eventually he's going to trust her with the truth of his mission and she's going to have to choose between helping him and completing her own mission and she's going to betray him somehow she's going to get killed and that's going to lead with him killing a king you think she dies yeah Yes. Yeah. Hmm. I don't really have a better alternative theory, so I will leave it at that. I'm going to I'm gonna play the field, and I'm going to bet that it's not Denna. Okay. But I don't really have a good... We'll find out. I, I, I want to say, like, Elodin or Threp or something. You know, the mayor. But I, but I don't have a better solution because really there's not too many people that are close to Quoth who really could betray him. Mm-hmm. So that does sort of narrow it down. Yeah. You know, the only real kind of emotional investment he has is in Sim and Will and Fella and Denna. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. How much of book three do you think will be at the Arcan- Ar- excuse me, at the Arcanum? I think a fair amount of it. I don't know. I, I I would say a fair amount not. 
Really? But we'll yeah, see. Well, there's so much well, more we that has that, to happen. That yeah. the climax is going to be him killing a king in Imre. So he's not going to go far from there. But I don't know. Yeah, I think I think a fair amount of it. You know, the doors of stone are there. I think there's a lot more yet to happen with Ari. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think as we've speculated, she plays a major part in this. Yeah. So I'm willing to bet that at least half of the next book is going to take place. I think I'd agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Will we get to see how Bass and Quoth first met? We better. Uh, Yeah, I'd be disappointed if we don't. We better. Okay. Ian says, I think you should do a live chat with some of your most tinfoil listeners. Yeah. I'd love that. I would love that. You, You know the thing that's stopping us from doing it? Neither of us know exactly how. Well, I think I could figure it out. We could figure I it mean, out. I mean, I think just haven't done you would it. just do a Facebook Live. Oh, okay. I guess we could, yeah. We just haven't sat down and really thought about what that entails. But I, I think that that is something that we could certainly do at some point. I, I'm definitely down with that. I have a bit of an announcement. Really? Yeah. I have a surprise look on my face, you guys. <laughs> I know you can't tell. Eyebrows way up in the air. <laughs> Eyebrows on the ceiling. <laughs> No, you know this. So we've had several conversations with the folks over at Cast Request about wanting to do a joint podcast. Now, we were going to do the season finale for Game of Thrones, but there was this whole hurricane. So that kind of pushed everything off and we didn't do it. So what our plan now is, and we'll see what happens, but our plan now is when they get to the end of The Wise Man's Fear, because they're doing a spoiler-free podcast as well that we will sit down and we will have a joint podcast where we will go through all kinds of theories fan casting and all of that we'll have a joint podcast with us and them right yeah that's gonna be awesome so very excited about that so live chat we'll we'll look at that and figure that out but um but definitely doing some sort of joint podcast with cast request and that's gonna be fun i'm really excited about that Justin D. Clark, or excuse me, Justin Clark at Justin D. Clark on Twitter says, the person who sank the ship was the person who walked behind Quoth and Elodin on the stone bridge. <gasps> and then later that same gentleman came and got the pinched faced man, got on the boat as he was talking to Threp right as Threp gave the titular line, you know, a wise man fears a gentleman's <gasps> anger. What? I need to get my book right now. You guys always do this to me. Run for my bookshelf. Well, go on. Well, for the sake of time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, go on. Go go on. I'm just going to, I'm just going to privately be reading this. Well, on Twitter, he, he put screen caps of the pages and highlighted the sections. Okay. So just go back through. crap, you guys. So he thinks that's who sunk the boat. You're so right. That's who sunk the ship. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm sorry. Go on. Okay. So Theo says, we told you Theo had some opinions about slow regard. Yes. He's not a fan. He says he reckons that slow regard is probably a book that benefits from a second read through, which we, which I agreed. It, mm-hmm. it did benefit from a second read through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm in the middle of a Philip Pullman story, so I can't do that right now. Mm-hmm. I liked it more by the end, but I felt like the overall focus on Ori was just too much. Mm-hmm. And I can see how somebody could, I can see how you could come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the conclusion I came to when I read it through the first time. I was like, okay, it's an awful lot of the inside of Ori's broken little skull, but mm-hmm. but what did we actually learn? 
but reading back through it a second time, I enjoyed it a lot more. He says he's very wary of authors going for a mental health issue as a character trait when they don't necessarily have a medical background. He says he can imagine people thinking of Ori as OCD, but that illness isn't like how it's popularly betrayed at all. And then Ian chimes in and says he agrees it's not OCD. feel like we have some opinions on that. Well, you do absolutely have to be careful diagnosing people. Even fictional characters. Even fictional characters. And you guys know I study psychology, so that's definitely something I, I like to do in my own time is like dig into different fictional diagnoses. As far as what I understand and know um, in my in my personal life, as well as other sources, is that all of these disorders act differently in different people. So you absolutely have to be careful. And also with a character like Ari, we're talking about a mystical cause to her mental breakdown. Yeah. So no, just saying, oh, she has OCD. You know, we, we know that people who struggle with OCD, it's, it's because of different connectivity and, and problems in their brain structure. It's not because they became a shaper and um, their mind cracked under the strain of it. So yeah, it's really definitely not appropriate to, um, to diagnose a fictional character in that way. At the same time, you know, what Patrick Rothfuss talks about in his end note is how he hopes that this story will help people who are broken and struggling with mental illness to feel less alone. And I really respect his intention there Um, as someone that we know he has struggled with mental illness. And there are so many out there of us out there who have to write a story um, that really authentically portrays uh, um, someone with mental illness um, is a really brave and a special thing to do, I, I think. And I think his intention is was really pure there. And I, I really respect that. I also agree. Unfortunately, in our culture, we are quick to say, oh, I'm o- I have OCD. Um, not comprehending what we're actually saying. Not you know, people tend to say, oh, I'm OCD because they like their house to be really clean. That is not what OCD <laughs> is. And if you have it or you know someone who does, you would understand that in like a second. But it is kind of frustrating when when people, let's like every, every time someone's sad being like, oh, I have depression. Like we don't do that. But in our culture, OCD is we, we tend to characterize it. Yeah. And that's that is frustrating for people who actually have the disorder. And yet at the same point in time, in many people, the order disorder does represent itself in ritualistic behaviors, and we do see those. Well, certainly, in I mean, art. and there there are different categories of of OCD. You know, health anxiety is falls under the OCD spectrum. Um, hypochondriasis, um, l- lots of different ways that that disease presents itself. So it's different for different people. Yeah, and, um, and my reason for bringing it up is to say that if somebody's out there saying that. Ori is OCD, I don't, well, one, again, we're not here to diagnose anybody, but I don't know that that's necessarily a wrong statement. She does demonstrate a lot of behaviors that would be consistent with somebody who had OCD. True. I I think the, the reaction is to, in our culture, portraying anyone who's kind of 
very tidy as having OCD. No, yeah. And people like taking that mantle on when they, they don't understand and don't have the disorder. No, absolutely. And, you know? and I, I wholeheartedly agree with and, that. And if, if you don't know what it's like to be plagued by obsessive thinking, you wouldn't really make light of that. It's, it's not the same as like liking things to be tidy. No, you know, or being yeah. a little uncomfortable when things are messy, like that's not OCD. So for someone who actually has a disorder, they hear that thrown around a lot. Yeah, it's not. It's frustrating. Yeah, under, understandably. All right. So we have another interaction with uh, Curtis W. Franks. And Curtis wrote a tremendous amount. And so I'm not going to read it all. But Curtis was the one and I hope I'm not. I hope I'm not ascribing this to the wrong person. It might have been Tim as well, but I went back and I could not find this interaction in my history. So if I'm ascribing to the wrong person, I apologize. But it was either uh, Curtis or Tim Hoffman who told us that the Cathay speaks in 10 word clips. And I said that I didn't find that to be true at all. Well, they came back and replied and they demonstrated how that is in fact true over and over again in several places. The distinction being that the sentences aren't necessarily 10 words. It could be a three-word sentence paired with a seven-word sentence, but the phrases come in 10-word clips. And that was accurate for huge chunks of the conversation between uh, Quoth and the Cathay. So thank you for pointing that out. Uh, Curtis also talks about the thrice-locked chest, and he believes that it holds some concrete memento which represents what he used to be, that he thinks the name changing is partly a legit magical name change, but also partially psychological, which I think we agree with, but that he does not think that what is in the chest is something so ephemeral or abstract as somebody's name. He thinks it is a physical object of some kind. And I've, I've heard speculation that it might be his cloak. Um, Could be. Or other items that he that are associated with both the arcane. So mm-hmm. I, I could be down with that. Yeah, absolutely. I like the idea that it isn't something ephemeral. I, I agree with that. So he says, what do you think goes wrong? Like, what's our speculation about what happens at the end? Well, I, I think we addressed that a little bit, or at least I gave my thoughts on it. I, I think he his search for the Chandrian and the Amir comes to a head and Denna's search as well comes to a head because they're heading for the same thing. And he trusts her and she betrays him in order to fulfill her own quest. Yep. There's uh, a king involved somewhere. I, I haven't figured that part out yet. But that, <laughs> that's what I think the crux is. Yeah, I think it's going to come down to something like that as well. And I think that she is going to be the key to opening the the lockless box. And I think that's going to be where everything comes to a head. Yeah. I also think my speculation is that she's going to end up marrying this king or hooking up with this king, Mm. and that's what's going to drive him to anger. Is it possible that the penitent king is the baddest mother shaper of them all? That would be badass. Like if she lets him out of the doors of stone and and then somehow he becomes the king and is penitent. Badass. I don't know, but that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? I repent of my badass shaping ways. Damn, I hope that's what it is. (laughs) That'd be so cool. Man, I hope that's what it is. All right, so Ian says that he believes that Lauren and Threp together are working as recruiters for the Amir, Mm -hmm. and that they sent Quote the Ventus to be evaluated by Brayden. I like that. I also think that Scarpy is probably a member of the Amir. 
I think that's I think that's highly possible. I I like that speculation. It's one of those things that I have a hard time separate. I have a hard time thinking of Braden as being tied to the Amir. You know, I equally think that Master Ash could be Braden or Cinder. Yeah, I, I really think he could be either. Well, I feel like the story is leading us the direction of him being tied to the Chandrian in some way. Braden, that is. My reason for thinking that Braden is not tied to the Amir is his emphasis on playing a beautiful game, which mm-hmm. to me is very counter the Amir philosophy of get it done, get it done by whatever means necessary for the greater good. You know, I that is a very good point, and I think I agree with you. And I think that whatever dissembling Braden has done and whatever lies he has told, I think that part of him has been true. I think his love of the game and playing the beautiful game, I think he's been honest in that area. Uh, and yeah, I, think I think that's so. part of his true character. So I think I agree with you on that. Yeah, I like where he's going. And it's one of those things where if it wasn't for that, thing i would say it's equally likely that he could be an agent of the amir or the chandrian but for that reason i i think he's not an amir i don't think he is so michael cruisenberry says do you think the Feyen and the yillish are related uh, the languages i'm sorry are related quoth seems to struggle with both languages oh that is very interesting and i think that i think it's entirely likely I think probably some places on Earth are closer to Fae than others. And I would speculate that Yil was one of them. And maybe that's why the Arturans came down so hard on that country in particular. That very well could be. It's hard to say. There's a million things that can make a language difficult. You know, and they don't necessarily have to be the same thing. You know, the weird grammatical rules. It could be as simple as there are no other languages that are similar. So there's no... There's no cognates. There's well, no, you if know. We, if we speculate that Yil is older than the other mm-hmm. civilizations and therefore more closely tied to the shapers who predated Fey, I think that would be a very real possibility. Yeah, absolutely. If, there's, if there are Yilish story knots on the box that's tied to the Door of Stone and the Yilish language has completely fallen out of use, it's that old... You know, um, I think that's all really good speculation. Yeah, I think so as well. I think so as well. Uh, Travis Dundas says, uh, looking forward to looking at the correlations between the slow regard of silent things and the core books, which I think we kind of went into. Oh, yeah. Where we believe it it takes place between chapter seven and chapter 11 of the wise man's fear. It's it's very concrete that it ends yeah. at chapter 11. Yeah. The beginning is a little iffy, but yeah. it, it absolutely ends there at a chapter 11 when when Quoth and Ari and Eladin are all on the roof together. No doubt about it. Right. So that's all I have. Do you have anything else? I don't, um, except to say thank you so much to all the listeners who have hung in with us. I never thought I would get Chad to read these books. <laughs> And you all helped me accomplish that. Um, and I just have really enjoyed everyone's interactions. I hope I hope you all hang in there with us through the Gentleman Bastard series, whether you're rereading it or if you're going to pick it up again. It really, it's I'm looking forward to getting into that series with everyone. Um, I am both surprised and pleasantly and just really tickled by the number of people who are telling us, they're going to go out and buy the book or they have bought the book and they're going to stick with us through it. It's I really expected that we would lose the overwhelming majority of our audience and then pick up 
more people, but that we really wouldn't have a lot of crossover. But I, I'm really, I'm just so, it's, it's I'm so surprised by how many people. We have sold tens of books for Scott Lynch. <laughs> You're welcome, Scott Lynch. You're welcomed. <laughs> But no, I'm I'm just really excited to get into the next series. Put at least um, forty dollars in his pocket. I think that um, we're going to get some more standalone episodes out. I think we want to talk about a couple other books that we've both read. But um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to to getting into the next one with you. Yeah. Now, one of the things we said is, and what what we wanted to do was really kind of get more deep more deeply into the theories and things of that nature. But I think what we're going to do is save that for when we sit down with cast request. Yes. And, and do that. Um, one, because I don't want to, I don't want to cheapen that and I want more time to prepare for it. Yes. So we will get more into those theories there. So this, if, if you are somebody who doesn't intend to move on with us and we would understand that we will be covering Tamarant in other ways periodically so this won't be the we're not closing the door completely we're going to leave it slightly cracked we'll also be in in the future talking about a couple other standalone works we've talked we are planning an episode on ready player one if anyone's interested Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a book we both loved uh the upcoming star wars movie i'm going to drag chad to that and see what he thinks of it absolutely we want to cover the the first three novellas of the uh, Night of the Seven Kingdoms series by George R. R. Martin, Duncan Egg novellas. Obviously, we'll be talking about uh, the Game of Thrones when that comes back as well. And um, if the sixth book ever gets out, we'll cover that. We may even get into a little Buffy the Vampire Slayer for those it of you happen. who were or some Doctor young who. in the 90s, yeah. Doctor Who. Um, all this stuff is in the future. So looking forward to seeing you guys in two weeks. Absolutely. So you can find us at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com on Twitter at the D N D podcast on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. And don't forget to look up our Facebook group at uh, the Duke and Duchess podcast group on Facebook. You have to search for that. Um, and we will try to send the link out on Facebook and Twitter a couple more times so you can find it. If you love us, give us a review. But if you really love us, tell somebody about us. Pimp us out, yo. Good night, everybody. Good night. Mm-hmm.